Hello all and welcome back to episode 45 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Kochenko. We have a very special guest on today. His name is Jackson Pios and it has been uh, quite a, a trip in trying to schedule this podcast. It is quite late, Jackson, where you are in Perth, Australia, so we're, we're very grateful for you uh, not just coming on but also taking uh, some later hours in your day to, to have a talk with us about intermittent dieting. It's my pleasure to be on. Great. So for those who don't know, Jackson and other colleagues, uh, of a couple of whom we've had on the podcast, such as uh, Eric Helms and Dr. Andy Galpin, uh, as well as Lane Norton and Paul Fournier. Is that how we pronounce his name, Jackson? Correct. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, these, I believe that would constitute five got together to look at the latest literature of intermittent dieting. And, and when you hear intermittent dieting, we're going to have to define a lot of terms up front, uh, which we'll let Jackson do. Um, you might think intermittent fasting right off the bat, and even then uh, might not understand exactly what that all entails. But we'll kind of define our terms up front and let Jackson explain the purpose of this research review. Um, because intermittent dieting the first real look into diet breaks and not having the classic model of continuous energy restriction was first kind of looked into based on Jackson, what I saw with you all looking at Wing and Jeffrey's first works in 2003. So you know, we've Correct. come a, a long way, but it still sounds like there's a lot to learn. Um, so uh, Jackson, if, if you wouldn't mind kind of diving into uh, the uh, the article and the, the questions you guys wanted to answer. And Kyle even just wrote down a piece of paper. Jackson, who are you? We, we, we haven't <laughs> let you even speak yet. So if you, if you just also mind uh, introducing yourself too. Sure. So um, I'm based in Western Australia. Um, I have an undergraduate degree, um, a double major, Bachelor of Science, Sports Science and Exercise and Health. Um, once I graduated with that, um, I progressed into what we call over here is an honours degree. Um, and that's where I focused on exercise physiology and was sort of really digging into sort of um, the nutritional components um, of sports performance and exercise performance. Um, I ended up doing really well in that um, honours degree and the university offered me a scholarship um, to complete my PhD. So I'm, I'm currently a PhD candidate, um, completing the first ever randomized controlled trial, examining intermittent diets versus continuous diets, um, and specifically in athletes. Um, so that, that's sort of my, my credentials. Now, with, with the paper, sort of, when I was sort of getting into my PhD and deciding what I wanted to study and things like that, I was, I was sort of asking myself, what are sort of some of the things that, that athletes and, and physique athletes and, and so on, what are they doing um, in practice that hasn't really been verified in the literature just yet? And a couple of things I was sort of thinking about was, was recovery, reverse dieting, and on the other scale was, was refeeds and diet breaks, which fall under this heading of, of something called intermittent energy restriction or intermittent dieting. Um, so I started, I started digging in a little bit to, to intermittent dieting and sort of realized that um, from a research perspective, we don't really know as much as we think we know, um, which is kind of funny because um, sort of in the fitness community, 
we sort of get this impression that refeeds and, and diet breaks are this sort of very fancy scientific practice, heavily evidenced um, in the literature, but that's just not the case. Um, yeah. I, as of as of this year, as of last year, when I first started my PhD, we had zero trials in the world ever that examined any diet with refeeds or diet breaks versus a continuous diet in, in trained people. We had zero, and it wasn't until sort of we haven't actually had anything published yet, but I know that in USA, uh, University of South Florida, head by Bill Campbell, um, they tested a two-day um, refeed, sorry, a five-day diet followed by two two-day refeed protocol versus a continuous protocol. So that's all we've really got now, and 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 my study was just just heading up now. So we re- we really had nothing when I, when I was first. Didn't know much yet. Um, so so where I was when I was starting my PhD was like okay. Um, we haven't got any controlled trials. Has anyone sort of looked at the the research on a broader scale that's maybe not just looking at athletes in particular, but has examined or compared intermittent dieting versus continuous dieting in sort of general population people or or, or animals or, or overweight people or anything? And, and so that's when I sort of I got together with Eric and Lane and sort of got some really smart brains in, in nutrition and sports nutrition and we, we sort of gathered – and we said, right, let's gather everything that we can. Any sort of any sort of trial that's compared intermittent versus continuous dieting, and and let's sort of let's gather it together and see if we can make a consensus and see if we can get a general idea of, of if one might be superior to the other, and and it, in what ways it, it might be superior. Um, and that's that's sort of what led on onto the review paper and sort of the practical sort of or the the findings that what what we made from that was. Again, specifically, yeah, we really don't know that much. Like, there's a pretty sound theoretical rationale for for why an intermittent diet might be a little bit better than a continuous diet. Um, and some of those, essentially, the, the the main theory is that an intermittent diet, which is a diet that has refeeds or diet breaks, might minimise some of the negative adaptive responses that typically accompany continuous dieting. Now, continuous dieting is just your traditional dieting approach where you're in a caloric deficit or um, eating less calories than required to maintain your body weight every day for the duration of, of, of the weight loss phase. Um, and what we t- what we see with continuous dieting approaches is we see down regulations in energy expenditure or metabolic rate. So you're burning less calories at rest and less calories during exercise. Um, and we also see changes in hormonal profiles. We see down regulations um, in some of the hormones that regulate our energy expenditure, namely leptin um, and thyroid. We also see changes in appetite regulating hormones. So we see less leptin secreted in the blood um, and higher levels of of ghrelin, which essentially means we become less satiated with meals and a lot more hungrier, um, which is essentially this physiological drive that's trying to get us to eat more to sort of put back the body weight on that we're losing to try and bring us back closer um, to our body body fat settling point where the body sort of likes to hang out and feels most comfortable. Um, So the the idea with intermittent intermittent dieting is by – by alternating a period of, of continuous dieting with a higher feeding period, whether that's a refeed or diet break, um, you're giving the body an influx of calories so it doesn't feel so constantly deprived. Mm. And then in theory, we might see a little bit of turn back of these negative adaptations. So we might see a little bit of stimulus um, in our energy expenditure or metabolism. or We might see a little bit of restoration in some of those hormone profiles that are taking a hit. So, do you want to go, Kyle? No, no, go ahead. So I think... 
what if we're to synthesize all that that when people uh, have encountered challenges in their traditional diets uh, they might not understand what all is at play that's making them feel uh, either physiologically, while they might not have a pulse on exactly what's going on, challenges, as well as uh, perhaps some psychological challenges as well. And you mentioned that which pertains to energy expenditure and that which is hormonal. And if you want to dive into and kind of learn more about some of these uh, uh, more specific uh, chemicals at play uh, and more of the uh, specific details outside of just knowing that with a continuous energy restriction uh, that we're going to have uh, some, uh, like I said, interruptions to a uh, diet on a long enough timeline that we can otherwise perhaps remediate with these quote-unquote diet breaks or have the energy expenditure be intermittent in some particular fashion, if that, Jackson, sounds like a, a good synopsis of that there. Right. So, so you just want some more specific details on, on how the intermittent might be superior? Is that what you're asking? Um, not quite. Just just kind of letting people know, like, if, for those details, because, you know, we don't want a lot of people listening, might not know, like, the exact mechanisms of the science, but just letting right. them okay. know. Okay, okay, yep. Letting them know if yep. you so, want... Yeah. So essentially, what we what we know is when when a person starts dieting, um, the caloric intake that they start with is only effective for losing weight for a certain period of time, and after that time, um, you'll notice that that you hit this weight loss plateau and, and body fat stops reducing, and the reason for that is what I was talking about before is is what we call these adaptive responses to energy restriction. Essentially, it's just this physiological adjustment to to being at a reduced body weight because our body. Um, doesn't like continuously losing weight. It likes homeostasis and it likes balance. Essentially what that balance is referring to is this body fat settling point or, or body weight set point where our body feels most comfortable at hanging out. Um, now what happens is is when we start a weight loss phase and we push our body to below its set settling point, um, the body starts fighting back a little bit. And and it does these, if I, if I just keep it general, um, it does this by by slowing down our, our metabolism, our energy expenditure, so so we're burning less calories. Now, if we're burning less calories, that means our, that our energy deficit that we had at the start of the diet is far less a few weeks into a diet, which means we aren't we aren't then burning more fat. So essentially what that means is, is future weight loss becomes more difficult, more difficult, more difficult. That's why for continued weight loss, we actually need to continuously make caloric reductions to account for that adaptive um, change in energy expenditure. Now, now that, that's sort of the energy expenditure side point. But we've also got these, we've also got these hormonal changes that, that are happening as well. Now, the most significant ones is these changes in, in balance of appetite-regulating hormones. Um, now, we've got leptin, ghrelin, and PYY, which is sort of the main three that really impact us most significantly during a diet. Um, now, as we get to a reduced body weight, we get these, these changes in balancing, balancing these hormones, which makes us a whole lot more hungrier. Now, now when we're hungrier, it's... it's it's our body telling us to eat more to bring us back to that body weight that we're at before. Mm -hmm. So, so what what I'm trying to say here is is with a continuously dieting approach, um, you might start for a few weeks, but then all of a sudden you're burning less calories. You're not losing any more weight. Um, you hit this sort of hard. You hit this sort of road bump, um, 
and you, and your body's just telling you to eat a whole lot more, and that can cause massive that can cause massive troubles for a person or an athlete's weight loss efforts because it's just trying to push them back in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where this intermittent <clears throat> dieting approaches come in because um, what the research says is is if we can better maintain our energy expenditure, it's going to mean we have better weight loss or fat loss efficiency. Now, what that refers to is you're losing more fat or, or more weight per unit of energy restriction. Um, so that might mean that you can you can lose more weight for less of, a, less of an energy deficit or less of a cal caloric reduction, which is sort of the ideal situation um, with the yeah. dieting phases is to be able to diet on as, as high calories as possible. Um, so yeah, if that, if that answers the question, um, one question, or I actually have two questions, but first was, uh, you know, we've talked about kind of the continuous and intermittent and I know lots of times people or not lots of times people may hear intermittent and think intermittent fasting, uh, uh, have periods where they only eat for eight hours and then the rest of the time they're fasting. Um, but what exactly are we talking about when we speak about intermittent dieting? Yeah, so so we have a. This is one of the big arguments that I had when we were doing the review paper with, yeah. with Lane and Andy and whatnot. Is um, when people in the fitness community hear intermittent fasting, what they're typically referring to is something in the literature called time restricted feeding. Mm -hmm. Now, this is sort of just a, a restricted feeding window within twenty four hours. Um, but when you actually sort of do a PubMed search on intermittent fasting. Typically, you're not seeing these time-restricted feeding approaches, which is why people are getting confused. What you do, what you do see is um, typically what intermittent fasting in the literature means is sort of a period of really severe dieting alternated with a period of higher eating or, or, or unrestricted eating. So common examples of this include alternate day fasting where someone might have sort of zero to 500 calories on one day and then they'll eat, up, eat, eat as they feel on the next day, and they'll just alternate that. Another really common one is something called the 5-2 intermittent fasting diet, where two days of the week um, they'll diet really, really severely, so um, again, zero to 500 calories, and then five days I'll eat normally. And we see some decent results um, in overweight people with, with, these, with these protocols. I don't think they're um, advisable to athletes, but... This, uh, this is where this confusion of intermittent fasting is going because people aren't really sure um, what we're referring to. Now, so this is why we tried to clean up the terminology a, bit and, a little bit and say, well, let's not call what we're studying intermittent fasting. Let's call it intermittent dieting. Now, we've sort of defined intermittent dieting as um, sort of at least seven consecutive dieting days. Oop. Which is a difference to the to intermittent fasting. Like we really don't want to advise an athlete to have zero to five hundred calories a day. Like it's it's going to have a bad outcome. So what we what we're defining intermittent dieting is is at least seven days of moderate dieting, so moderate energy deficit, followed by a higher feeding period. Now this is still really broad because intermittent dieting it can include a twenty four hour refeed or it can include a two week diet break. Like there's there's it's it's we're we're struggling to really have a very concise, um, very concise definition because there's such variation in intermittent protocols at the moment. And this seemed to be a challenge to your review, right? And that anything oh, that 100%. had, pardon? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So that when you are doing a review on intermittent dieting, it's quite hard when any type of 
uh, intermittent dieting is lumped as one sum, yet how the actual diet is performed is not clearly defined, or at least there isn't this attempt yet to find this best ratio or best practice. And if, if I understand this correctly, Jackson, both you and Eric and Lane are in the process of looking into, and I, I from what I understand, this is ongoing, this three to one relationship? Correct. Yeah. So, so the, the comment, the comment that I'm that you're referring to is is one of the limitations that I, that I wrote down um, in that review paper, because we've we've got a few papers that have compared intermittent versus continuous dieting um, in overweight people or general pop people, and some of the results have said that it doesn't really matter. You do continuous or intermittent, you're probably going to get the same results. Just do what you prefer. Um, but the problem that I have with some of these papers is, is if you really look, so, so a review paper is a collection of studies, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the individual studies, like you can have an intermittent dieting diet that during their refeed period, it could be taking the person to energy balance, so caloric maintenance. It could be taking them to a massive surplus. It could be an unrestricted period of eating, or it could be just less of an energy deficit. So, like, if, if you're collecting all studies with that much variation, how can you be so? How can you make conclusions about which is the which one is better? Yeah, you know what you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was, that was one of the major problems that I have with some of the research, um, which is which might suggest that intermittent isn't any better than continuous, is because there's there's this grouping of protocols with such significant variation. I feel like I feel like it's it's unwise to make conclusions based on that. Um, but yeah, so the study that I'm running at the moment is. We have 60 athletes, and the control group is what we'd call our continuous dieting group, and they have 12 weeks of moderate dieting continuously, so no diet breaks, no refeeds. Now, what our intermittent group has, which is our test group, is they're doing 12 total weeks of dieting as well, the same calories match, so same energy deficit, but after every three weeks of the diet, they have a one-week diet break. Now, the diet break isn't just a do what you want. It's where we're calculating how many calories they need to maintain their body weight and that's how much we're feeding them on. Um, so, so it's going three to one, three to one, three to one until they've completed 12 total weeks of dieting. So what that means is the intervention for the intermittent group is slightly longer, um, but essentially they're, they're still dieting for the same amount of weeks. Is there any, um, and I'm, you know, especially with this type of research, you really have to control your variables. Are you influencing uh, their training to any degree? Are they resistance training? Are they training uh, strictly aerobic, uh, aerobically? Uh, because in the paper, I thought, you know, really great mention. I, I have heard, of course, the significance of uh, how we might want to uh, bias one type of macronutrient during a refeed than another. I've heard uh, the significance of keeping adequate protein intake during uh, any type of uh, diet, whether it's continuous or intermittent. Um, but if you can speak to uh, perhaps whether or not there's any training involved, and if there's not training involved in, in your upcoming study, what might be some training considerations for people to help keep around, you know, most notably in a, a fat loss phase, some muscle mass? Right. So the eligibility criteria, so, so we knew we were going to have athletes coming into the study from a variety of different sporting disciplines, right? So 
it was it's going to be difficult to say okay and another problem we had is is athletes from different sports are going to be at different parts of their season some mm, might be in season yeah. some, some might be off season so we can't really say to a competitive athlete okay you yeah. need to do this sort of training yeah. their coaches are going to be running that so so we had to be a little so so what we did is we said okay as as a minimum eligibility for you to be allowed to be in the study you need to have done two weight training sessions per week for at least the last 6 months Mm-hmm. So they're all resistance trained. That that's sort of the that's the general resistance trained criteria when you look at research is at least two for the last six months per week. Um, now any aerobic training, we said that was fine. You can you can do you, you can come in. You can be aerobically trained, no problem. Now what the what another part that we had to think about is well, if we give a person a certain a number of calories um, that they're dieting on, and then all of a sudden they they switch from sort of off season to in season, and their training energy expenditure just triples that's going to screw our results big time so one of the another components of the eligibility is you need to be able to follow a consistent training plan for the next 12 weeks so whatever you're doing at week one we need you to be doing at week 12 and if they can't if they couldn't commit to that then we say thank you but no thank you right um now in going into other parts of your questions, sort of some of the considerations um, for the training and and setting up the diet breaks is there's some rationale that um, so so we know that with a refeed or diet break we're increasing their calories. Um, now, do we do we increase all macronutrients or do we increase specific macronutrients? Mm-hmm. So that's what we sort of need to ask ourselves. And there is some pretty decent rationale to suggest that when increasing our calories. We're going to get the most benefit by giving preference to increasing carbohydrate. Um, now, th- that ha- happens for a couple of reasons. Now, some of these are specific to athletes, and they wouldn't so much apply to general population person who's dieting. Now, some of these some of these reasons is, is we know that when an athlete depletes their glycogen stores, um, their strength and endurance is compromised. It, it becomes impaired. Now, with a carbohydrate-dominant refeed or diet break, we know that that's going to give some replenishment um, of glycogen, and therefore the athlete's going to be able to perform a little better. So because obviously one of the main considerations for, for an athlete dieting is, is you've got to try and keep them performing as their best because if they start performing crap, you haven't done your job as sort of, sort of the coach. So from one perspective, increasing carbohydrate may have some benefit just purely from a glycogen saturation standpoint. When they have glyc- higher glycogen from the carbohydrate-dominant refeed, um, or, the, or the diet break, they have a high um, glycogen saturation content, they can tolerate higher training volumes and they can recover from more training. So the more training and the more training they rec- recover from during the dieting phase is probably going to mean that they're performing better on show day or, or, or competition day or, or whatever sport they're in. <clears throat> um, another reason we have for, for why carbohydrate um, dominant refeed or diet break might be better is, is this thing called leptin. Now, I touched on it before. Now, leptin is this hormone that has a positive role on our energy expenditure, which means when we have, have higher levels of leptin in our blood, we're burning more calories. So obviously, from, from a weight loss standpoint, the more calories we can burn, the better, because it means that the less calories we need to reduce to, to, to sort of maintain the deficit. We also know leptin is, is one of these um, appetite-regulating hormones. So when we have higher le- levels of leptin in the blood, we feel more satiated. We have less cravings. We have less desire to binge and whatnot. Now, we know from the research, um, and the, the research is heavily driven by these guys called Chin Chance and Rosenborn, we know that leptin is specifically sensitive to, to carbohydrate. 
We know that when you re- when you overfeed someone on protein or or, um, or fat, you don't really get this upsurge in leptin. Now, now when you diet, you're getting these decreases in leptin. That's, that's one of our adaptive responses. So we want to we want to sort of stimulate a release of leptin, a little boost if we can get it. Um, now we know if we increase protein or fat, it's probably not going to do much for 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 leptin, but this funny thing happens when when you increase carbohydrates or when you overfeed someone on carbohydrates, you see this really quick upsurge um, in, in in leptin release, and and specifically one of these studies showed that when you give someone a a, a, um, a feeding of carbohydrate, that leptin um, increased and it translated to a seven percent increase um, in calories burned throughout the day. So it's not a massive it's not a massive boost, but it's probably enough to have a significant impact on on sort of the weight loss outcomes, and it would certainly have a significant um, impact in a randomised controlled trial comparing sort of a continuous versus um, an intermittent diving study. Um, now, some some of the other training considerations that, that we spoke about in the review papers, because um, essentially what we gathered we gathered all the research and we said well. We probably we probably can't make too much too many conclusions. We just don't we don't have any research on athletes, mostly on overweight people, some on rodents. We can't really say, okay, just because this is happening in these populations, then therefore it's gonna happen in athletes. We'd get smashed in peer review. Um, so what we thought is okay, well let's try and make some from the limited evidence we have, let's try and make some practical um, practical recommendations that an athlete might be able to apply if they're considering doing an intermittent diet. Now, some of these ones um, I spoke about before, so probably <clears throat> giving preference to increasing carbohydrate when you're doing your refeeds and diet breaks. Um, but another one, another ones we came across were, were related to training. Now, what we what we think is that when you're refeeding or diet break, it might be a good idea to coordinate these where you've got your highest volume training week or training block mm. or if you've got sort of an outcome-focused um, training week. Now, this is not related to so much bodybuilders and things, but it, it heavily relates to sports athletes. Like you might have a, have a sprinter or, or someone like that. Now, they, they get tested every sort of three weeks, four weeks to make sure that they're, that they're progressing in the right way and that they're on track for their meet or, or worlds or whatnot. Now... If you, we know that when you diet, you get this um, cumulative increase um, in fatigue, which outweighs your fitness. Now, fitness is just sort of this general term that's referring to your performance. So, essentially, this this increase in fatigue is masking how well you can really perform. So, so what we know is that when you refeed someone on a diet break, we get this dissipation of fatigue. Now, it reveals where the true level of fitness or performance might be sitting. So, if you're a sprinter athlete, for example, or or a powerlifter. Um, and you've got a testing week coming up, it would make sense to do that on a diet break week because those calories are going to be able to be used to, to allow you to perform a little bit more optimally versus if you did it during a dieting week where you're, where glycogen saturation is low and, and, and the system's heavily deprived. Um, so we think, we think it's, uh, we can think we can, it's a probably decent idea to, to sort of have some coordination of, of your diet breaks with, Diet breaks either with with testing weeks or, or outcome weeks or or higher volume weeks, yeah. just because um, the higher calories is going to allow you to recover from more um, and to tolerate more of the higher volume. Whereas um, doing a massive overload workout or overload week yeah. um, on low calories can 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 rock the system a little bit. 
I, I have a, two questions off of that, uh, and I'll uh, ask the one about uh, about training weeks first. Is um, so you just said like you might want to raise your carbohydrates during an overload week, but then potentially during your uh, deload week, um, then you would maybe go back down to your calories that would be an energy deficit. Would it be better to potentially have the uh, maintenance calories during the deload for recovery, or would it be better to have it in that overload week? I know that's more of a new question, but yeah, no, we had we had this exact um, discussion yeah. um, because there there is like that's a very relevant um, that's a very fair point. Um, but what we were sort of thinking is is when it comes into sort of programming how many calories the person's going to be having on their diet break week, if the activity energy expenditure is going down a whole lot via deload, they're just doing less volume, mm-hmm. it wouldn't make sense. Like their, their caloric maintenance therefore changes. Yeah. So we're thinking that it, they should either sort of, if they're going to have the increase in calories, it's easier if they just maintain their volume or have a little bit higher volume because if you wanted, if, if, if you're giving them diet break calories that you had originally planned and then they deload, you're probably going to take them into a surplus, which is not really the goal of a diet break. Yeah. Week. And, and then the other question I had off of that was, in these performance-based um, outcomes, how long, uh, I guess let's say like it's your week that you have some sort of test and you decide to go to maintenance, would it be better to have the test at the end of the week? Because by that Absolutely. time point, yeah, because by that time point, you've kind of like readjusted. Yeah. Um, like, is there a certain amount of time that you have to think about how long you should be in maintenance before that it has these effects? The longer, the better, man. Yeah. The longer, the better. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, at least anecdotally, Jackson, and, and we work with athletes across an array of sports, is, you know, if we try to create some kind of functional overreaching and we have an athlete report having missed a meal here or there, for whatever reasons, life uh, often sometimes gets in the way, especially for non-professional athletes, um, it it's just... It, it comes at such a detriment to that that overload training, right? Uh, sometimes we might experience or, or, or witness these athletes uh, perceiving, uh, you know, increased pain symptoms, uh, like intense lethargy, where we might have to deload early. So at least what I suggest to those who don't necessarily track their precise macronutrient intake is to make sure that they're at least not missing meals and making sure they're not feeling hungry. Um, for me, that's never a problem. I have a hard time understanding that, but I, from, for others, that just seems to be like a reality. Do you think that that's at least a good general place to start for uh, either uh, dietitians or, or even coaches just giving general recommendations for athletes who might not have a pulse on exactly how much they're eating? It's just that during overloading weeks of training, if there is it to be almost like a... Uh, a refeed, uh, but not going like totally, like not not totally going uh, overboard with it all, but just to not eat uh, or not undereat, so that you 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 go to bed feeling hungry. Is that a good recommendation? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Um, like when I was talking about talking with Eric about sort of how they apply their refeeds and diet breaks in practice, um, like it's it's very rare that it will be on a consistent schedule, like a three-in-one sort of thing. It becomes a lot more nuanced when you're working with an individual. Um, So like you said, if they've got an overloading week and they're feeling a little bit lethargic and things like that, then Eric will 
will bring in a diet break or a refeed at that time. Another time they'll they'll bring it in is is when sort of weight loss might stall um, and be like, okay, um, the body's fighting back a little bit here. This might be a decent time to sort of <clears throat> sort of bring in a refeed on diet break. But but I think I think what you're saying there there is perfectly reasonable. Um, if if it feels like it feels like the outcomes aren't going to plan, um, and make, you're getting the impression that the person is deprived. Uh-huh. Um, maybe telling them to be a little bit looser on their calories, and maybe not try to, to sort of gain weight in this phase, but sort of just make sure they're eating enough to feel okay. That's probably a, a, probably a decent um, a decent recommendation. But then again, sort of we know that when a person's deep into a dieting phase, sort of the hunger cues get a little bit skewed. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the the recommendation to just eat based on appetite can come a little bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of comes down to working with it on, on an individual level. Now, have you ever had challenges? Because if someone hadn't looked at this, say like those initial 2003 observations uh, weren't observed in, in those studies where when athletes had refeeds, they're for, uh, I think it was a 14-week uh, um, or maybe longer uh, uh, diet that with refeeds, there was no uh, detriment to uh, net weight loss relative to the continuous uh, energy restriction. Do you find just because I think when people hear, oh, well, I'm going to have a refeed, that there's almost this, because there is a psychological influence to this. It's a, it's a large reason why perhaps this could be effective is because it breaks up the diet. But have you seen or has Eric described, at least in, in your collaboration, oh, uh, this uh kind of like psychological teeter like seesaw so to speak where people are like wait i'm i'm eating more but i'm still trying to lose weight and having any kind of resistance there if that makes sense mm. um yeah so i think i'll break this question down in a couple of parts i think the the physiological um so the potential physiological benefits of a refeed and diet break um, are a lot more speculative versus the psychological benefits. Now, what I, what I mean by that is I think we can probably fairly confidently say that, that an intermittent um, dieting approach is going to have more of a positive mental impact on an athlete than, than a continuous dieting approach. Now, I can probably I can back that up because, like I said, I'm, I'm running the diet study at the moment and I've had about, had about 20 completers, so... Um, 20 from the continuous and intermittent group that have got through the 12, 12 dieting weeks. Now, I interact with these every of the every one of the participants on, on a weekly basis. Um, so I, I speak to them. I say, how are you feeling? Um, how do you feel about the diet? Um, is it tough? Um, do you feel like you can get through it? And um, this is difficult to quantify, but I'm getting a significant impression that, that the people in the IER group or the intermittent group are just feeling a whole lot better um, about the whole dieting process because sort of even if you're down to yourself in the position of the participant, you might be at the end of week two of a dieting week and, and feeling pretty crappy, but you can sort of say, oh, fuck, if I just hang on for seven more days, mm-hmm. I've got these big carbs coming that's going <clears> to <throat> for a seven-day week where I can sort of um, feel a little bit more mentally refreshed and, and things like that as, as sort of like a, a reward for, for staying compliant during the three weeks. Whereas you put that onto sort of the continuous dieting group, when they're at week four feeling crap and feeling hungry with eight more weeks, 
eight more daunting weeks in front of them. Um, I feel like that can open you up to sort of falling off the wagon a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do know that from, from working with athletes, sometimes um, sometimes a little less restriction um, can lead to a whole lot less restriction. So once they, once sort of, it's sort of the idea of once the dog gets the feeling of being off the chain, yeah. it just wants to sprint. It just wants to sprint away sort of thing. Um, so it happens, it, yeah, it happens a little bit both ways. Um, I think there's some, some ways you can structure it to minimize that negative psychological component. And one of the ways is, um, is limiting the addition of new food sources during your refeed or diet break week. Mm. Um, because when someone's on 150 grams of carbohydrates, they tend to go on quite voluminous sort of quite bland foods like your rices and your sweet potatoes and things like that. When someone then goes to a week of 400 carbohydrates, ice cream all the time. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, (laughs) yeah, they start wanting to bring in cereals and, and all the sushi and things like that. Now, we know that those foods have a have a far more significant hedonic impact than your sweet potatoes and your oatmeals and, and so forth. So once these people get a little taste of it, they just want a whole lot more of it. Like there's only so much brown rice that you're going to want to binge on, you know? Like, But yeah. damn, like people will eat a, a box of cereal <laughs> if they could, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So there's there's the psych, psychological thing can, can go both ways, but I still think overall um, that – the intermittent group um, or the an intermittent dieting approach has a has a better um, psychological impact than sort of a continuous dieting approach. Well, so so Jackson, one of my friends always used to say, and you can tell me if this is scientific or not, that calories don't count with friends. So if you just have them eat with friends during that week, it's all good, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I said I said to these people before. I said like any festive calories, holiday calories, Christmas calories. Just count them as half the calories. Yeah. Like that's, that's the way I do it. Well, yeah. You know, like, it, carbs are only two calories per gram. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and what you're saying, Jackson, I think it it's interesting when as I was reading this, um, and, and especially with this three to one, and, and I I think you know you all might be drawing if this isn't too far reach uh, on training parallels uh, because I certainly just got a really uh, good sense of how wow like when when done really well um, you have these uh, congruencies between training and and dieting and and of course that makes sense and I think even the psychological challenges how it could go both ways is similar so like during an overload week at least with the training it could feel really hard but just mm-hmm. like you said if I can just get through like a couple more sessions I know that deloads there and then yeah, that's a good point that's a good I like that yeah and then during the deload I've had athletes who maybe they get to the end of the deload and they're feeling fresh we've dropped fatigue kind of like in that fitness fatigue model you expressed earlier so like that's that's great that's exactly what I want to do and then I've had athletes uh, you know more than one and on multiple occasions say oh it's a deload week I'm feeling great and then they max out it's it's uh, just like kind of randomly off program and that I think would be like the calories don't count with friends thing and maybe uh, if we can kind of like draw these parallels I think it would be almost easier for the athlete because athletes often you hear at least I hear describe well you know I've got training down I just don't have nutrition down and it seems like if you can almost merge the psychologies together, it would be easier. Well, yeah, and I was I was also going to mention what seems really cool about the study, and 
um, at least to my knowledge, is that it seems to answer a lot of uh, the questions around when people get frustrated where they're dropping calories, dropping calories, but things just don't seem to be moving at some point. Um, and this is potentially why it's because of all these, these metabolic adaptations that are occurring is that you actually need this break and they're just feeling, you know, shittier and shittier, but actually taking some time away for it and coming back is, is very important. And, um, also kind of answers the, uh, when people would be like, Oh, well, it's just not all about calories. Cause I got down to like 800 calories a day and I stopped losing weight kind of thing. Mm. I've actually seen that. So because of, <clears throat> we're doing the three, one model, um, yeah. now I don't, the, the, the sort of the approach that we have to, to adjusting calories as the person progressively loses weight is is we have these fixed weekly weight loss targets. Yeah. Now, if the person makes the, the target for the week, then I, I make no adjustment to calories. Um, if they don't make the target, then I make a 5% adjustment in calories. Now, what I've, what I've seen is um, sometimes for a couple of weeks in a row, so this that's consecutive caloric reductions the person might not make um might not make the weekly loss target now then all of a sudden um just because they're at the end of their three-week block it's a diet break week um they got to have the influx of calories um they maintain their body weight their body weight doesn't go up then they return to the calories that they were on on the third week of the dieting block mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they make the weight loss target again so yeah. it's, it's quite interesting how, how that's happening yeah i like here how in the um in the review if I'm just going to kind of quote this here, it says, however, approaching weight loss in a solely energy in, energy out manner fails to consider the effects dietary composition may have on additional outcomes, including the body composition of weight loss, satiation, the thermic effect of feeding, and ease of compliance. Because I, I feel like, you know, the calories in, calories out uh, is this kind of law that we know as being thermodynamics, but it sounds as though... Uh, these responses to continuous energy uh, restriction produces, as, as you described, kind of this adjustment of metabolism or Kyle, what you described, like it keeps coming down and down, but people just mm-hmm. don't see change. I think what, what's described, at least scientifically, Jackson, is adaptive thermoneogenesis. Is that correct? Yep. To, correct. And that yeah. describes that exact phenomenon, correct? It's What that's referring to specifically is is the reduction in energy expenditure or, or metabolism that isn't explained purely by the loss of body mass. So mm. it's essentially a metabolic adaptation that's occurring. Mm. Great. Because so, we know that if a person loses mass, whether it's fat or or, um, or, lean mu- or muscle mass, th- they're both metabolically active tissues. So when you have less tissue, um, you're all of a sudden just going to be bu- burning less calories. That, that's just because you have less, t- less active tissue in your system. Um, but... But what we see is is when when a metabolism goes down, it's going down further than that can what can be explained by just a loss of tissue. Now that difference is what we refer to as adaptive thermogenesis. Gotcha. So and, and you mentioned uh, not just um, fat mass there, but fat free mass, and that would include muscle mass. Uh, we we touched on carbohydrates, and uh, can you speak more to the significance of uh, having just adequate protein, uh, at least from a a physiological standpoint during these diet breaks, be it continuous or intermittent. Yeah. So, so the reason we care about fat-free mass, or the reason we care about most trying to to maintain our fat-free masses, is, is we know that that's pre- predominantly muscle mass. Um, now, 
with with most athletes, um, if you compromise their muscle, if they have some sort of strength or endurance component in their sport or activity, and you're losing muscle mass, it's usually going to be correlated with also a decrease in performance, whatever their outcome metric is. Um, We also know that that fat-free mass versus fat mass, fat-free mass is a lot more metabolically active than fat mass, which means that fat-free mass is more highly correlated with a person's energy expenditure than fat mass is. So if a person is losing fat-free mass, they're potentially going to be losing muscle, which is going to compromise their sports performance, and it's also going to cause more significant reductions in their energy expenditure or their metabolic rate. So it's in our best interest to try and maintain our fat-free mass during a dieting phase as best we can. And there's a couple ways we can do that. One, one way is by keeping protein intake relatively high. Now that goes into what you are talking about before where, yeah, you, need a, you do need a caloric deficit to lose weight, but some manip- manipulations of macronutrients can probably optimize things a little bit more. So you want to keep a relatively high protein intake, um, which is going to mitigate some of the, the fat-free mass losses that typically accompany dieting. Another thing we want to do is we want to have some weight training in there because we know that Heavily evidenced um, in the in the literature is that if someone's doing weight training, they tend to lose less muscle mass during a dieting phase than a person who's not doing weight training. Mm-hmm. Um, another consideration we have is so we sort of covered protein is well, okay, what do we do with our carbs and, and our fats? Um, now there's a pretty pretty decent when a, when an athlete is on a higher carbohydrate intake, um, they they will perform better whether that's in a strength or an endurance capacity. Now, if an athlete is specifically, if an athlete um, is it has sort of weight training as a decent component of their training regimen, um, if they've got higher carbohydrate intake that's allowing them to tolerate higher volumes in the gym, we know that that volume is is significantly correlated with, with muscle hypertrophy. So we know if they're doing higher higher volumes in the weight room they're probably most likely going to be um, maintaining more muscle mass than an athlete who might have a really low carbohydrate intake and high fat intake, which is not really doing anything for glycogen. It might mean that their volume, um, training volume gets compromised somewhat. And if they're, if they're doing progressively less and less volume in the weight room, then you will see muscle losses. Um, so that's, that's sort of, that sort of ties into why a ketogenic approach is probably a pretty dumb approach for, for any athlete that's doing at least a moderate level of, of intense exercise. Gotcha. And, you know, uh, with, with the results, because some people are, are probably maybe holding on to, well, you know, what, what were the, the findings here? Um, and, and just to uh, kind of quote this last piece of it, it says, well, some advantages to an intermittent energy restrictive approach have been observed in non-athletic populations. We cannot yet confidentially, confidentially, confidently, oh my gosh, can't speak. We it's cannot co- it's confidential, don't worry. <laughs> confidently extrapolate these findings to athletes. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, a lot is still kind of speculative and it sounds, Jackson, and, and a great place, I think, being respectful of your time and what time it is in Australia, is, you know, with... Your study moving forward, um, what are you, based on, it sounds uh, at least more subjectively like uh, these athletes, at least psychologically, are enjoying these diet breaks, uh, what are you uh, hoping to find here and and where might uh, research in the future fill in some gaps? All right, so what I'm I'm hoping for, um, I am hoping that we see um, the intermittent group outperform the continuous group in, in a 
sort of a num- number of capacities. Now, the capacities that I'm most interested in is is muscle performance. So that's why we have this really cool machine in the lab called an isokinetic dynamometer, and it can really accurately measure muscle torque, muscle strength, muscle power, and muscle endurance. Now, we're measuring these athletes at increments across the dieting study to see, okay, how, how, is, their, how is their muscle performance changing? Um, because like I talked about before, there's – I have a theory, and other people have this theory that um, that the diet breaks are prob- and refeeds are probably going to allow an athlete to perform a little better um, during training and during competition than versus an athlete that's just constantly deprived for the whole weight loss phase. So I'm hoping that we see a muscle performance benefit. One of the other things that I'm measuring is is how do their, does their resting energy expenditure or, or metabolic rate change? Um, now the theory suggests that. If by having these these diet breaks, you're going to see a temporary normalization of metabolic rate, that's what I'm hoping to see. Um, and um, what I'm expecting to see is a lower metabolic rate or energy expenditure in the continuous group. Yeah. A cool thing that I only just started doing is, is I got my license to sort of take blood from from veins. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm taking veins and I'm looking. I'm taking blood from veins. I'm looking at some of the hormonal changes. Um, because, like I said, we've we've got this theory that that diet breaks are ca- causing a normalization of, of hormonal changes, but it's it's based on pretty crappy studies, like overfeeding studies, and like the problem with overfeeding studies, like when you see like you overfeed someone on carbohydrates, so you're taking them into a caloric surplus, like that's not applicable to a diet break because if you take someone into a caloric surplus and they gain weight during that period of time. It's 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 negating the, the benefits of the diet break itself mm-hmm. because you just got more you've then got more weight to lose in, in the in the following diet diet weeks. So we know that if you overfeed someone, you get this normalization of of hormonal profiles a little bit, but we don't know if just taking someone into caloric balance, so it's a caloric maintenance or, or energy balance, we don't know if we see the same response. So I'm hoping we see a little bit of normalization, which is why I'm testing people of taking blood before a diet break, like. The, the day before a diet break and the day after a diet break to see what sort of changes were, what is happening in the blood. I hope to see some changes, but I really don't know. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, they're, they're sort of some of the things I'm hoping to see. Awesome. Uh, well, Jackson, it sounds, and do you have an idea when the results uh, of this study uh, will come out? Uh, and then I'm sure it will be a little bit while longer than for it to be published. But where are you in the, the trial? I might have to have you back on to discuss those findings. Yeah, um, I'm hoping to have the data collection wrapped up around May this year. Uh-huh. Now, obviously, um, from a bias perspective, you're not allowed to look at any of the results until everything's been collected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, a, if, a re, if a researcher has an idea that the results might be going one way, it can skew things a little bit. So um, I think I'll be collecting the data in May and then sort of one or two months later will be data analysis. And then I'm hoping with a month or so I can um, sort of draft up my findings and my conclusions and then sort of hopefully be ready published sometime at the end of this year. It's it's a long time scale, but research. Oh, yeah. what, what I've learned with research is things just take a whole lot longer than, than what you think they do. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been great hearing all this. I think it's so interesting all of these uh, adaptations and the way that our body, in a sense, kind of like fights back from the weight loss. But it's also cool to know that you can. It, to me, it almost this makes it seem easier to lose weight. It may take a little longer overall. Um, yep. 
I mean, maybe not, but it just makes it seem a lot, knowing these things makes it seem easier and more calming as well to be like, all right, well, this is the reason it's not continuing to happen. I can take this big break. Uh, and just, I don't know, does that, do you guys feel that way either? Well, yeah. yeah, I think it's just, we, and we have advocate Jackson for this model of training that's just kind of like, hey, you know, uh, play to this this patient long game, don't really do anything in haste. We know that aggressive dieting works less effectively. That's been well researched. Uh, we see, uh, again, I think this ties back to, at least for me, I know I train that way, like yeah. this, this long steady approach, it might not always like I'm gonna always see these gains. You might not always see the scale drop, yeah. but I think it's gonna lead you to where you want to go, uh, perhaps more effectively. Well, it's kind of like what Eric said is that uh, he saw his totals going up five kilos and was it two or three years? He's like, well, that's still progress. So be happy about that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Jackson, where before we let you go, can people find you? Um, uh, at least on Instagram, you are, are, are quite entertaining while also uh, <laughs> providing people with. A really good uh, literature, or at least the uh, synthesis, your your synthesis of the literature. But but where can people find you? I appreciate that. I put a lot of effort into my Simpson Simpsons memes. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, it's it's memes. <laughs> yeah, basically, the posts are, are memes with some kind of cartoon uh, well, uh, background, yeah, and great. then and then a research study attached to it. <laughs> yeah. So so my Instagram handle is at Jackson Peels. Um, one word. That's where I'm most active. So any updates and sort of some of the new research that's getting published that sort of pertains to nutrition and, and training, I, I sort of I try to keep up to date and try to keep um, sort of my followers up to date. I tend to not go too scientific. I sort of just try to focus on the practical takeaways because mm-hmm. I know you've sort of only got 45 seconds before a person swipes down. Yeah. So <laughs> I try, try I try to make it quite concise. Um, but that's that's where I'm most active. And then for the more nerdy people. Um, my research gate profile, um, Jackson PLS as well. That's where I publish all my my study findings, and you can see sort of more of the sort of formal updates on on what's going on with the research there. Wonderful, and and I think the last thing that I would say is that if you're a coach and you have a hard time um, with scientific literature, because it it can be dense, especially if you're not scientifically literate. That's very different than just your basic literacy reading a book so uh, what you could do is perhaps listen to what jackson's uh, said on this show and then if you'd like to improve your scientific literacy or at least dive into it now you can pull up the whole of the review and it might be a bit more digestible and uh, perhaps if you're at all interested you can go forth uh, we subscribe to mass research review mass will have audio interviews of Greg and of Eric and other people involved, such as Mike Zorodos, and they'll be speaking about a topic, and then you can hear it and then go back and actually look at the reviews uh, to improve your scientific literacy. Again, if you're a coach trying to find the time. If not, if the audio is what you have and that's all that you it's all that you have time for that's certainly better than nothing uh jackson thank you so much for coming on um i think we let listeners know that when you have someone being interviewed from afar we have to say goodbye but then we have this little awkwardness but not so awkwardness where we're not really saying goodbye we're going to be talking after the podcast but at least for now uh, viewers hopefully you enjoyed this and jackson thanks so much for coming on it's my pleasure man thank you